This week, we continue a series of interviews with participants in the Pedagogies of Care project. In this episode, we discuss what faculty can do to foster an inclusive and equitable class climate for all of our students. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guests today are Dr. Cindy Kernahan and Dr. Kevin Gannon. Cindy is a psychology professor and the new director of the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Wisconsin at River Falls. She is also the author of Teaching About Race and Racism in the College Class, Notes from a White Professor. Kevin is a director of the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning and a professor of history at Grandview University. He is the author of Radical Hope, a Teaching Manifesto. Cindy and Kevin are both participants in the Pedagogies of Care project created by authors in the West Virginia University press series on teaching and learning. Welcome back, Cindy and Kevin. Thanks. Thank you. Great to be here. Today's teas are? Mine is no tea. I'm drinking Diet Pepsi in a large cup because I need my caffeine in bulk today. (laughs) (laughs) I came prepared. I have apricot black tea. That sounds good. That's very good. And I have a tea forte black currant tea. I'm rocking iced tea today because it's 90 degrees. I have had many iced teas already earlier today. Is it that warm? Okay. I knew it was getting a little warmer here. We've invited you here to talk primarily about your contribution to the Pedagogies of Care project. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. This collection was started by one of the authors in the West Virginia University Press series on teaching and learning in higher education that I know you all have had several episodes about. It's edited by Jim Lang. There's several contributors. And so we were all asked if we would like to contribute something that would then be provided during all of this time of pivoting to online and uncertainty as sort of a way to provide some quick educational development materials for folks. Yeah, the intent of it was to have it be open access, Creative Commons license, freely available. And in this time of pivot, there are so many resources out there about how to use this tool, how to do that tool, how to move on to Blackboard in 90 seconds or whatever that may be. But the larger issue of how do you do this in a way that acknowledges student needs and your own needs and how do you still keep the type of learning space that's so important for student learning, at least relatively intact, given all of the upheaval. And that's what I think a real strength of the collection is, this idea that we need to understand things like tools and techniques, but we still need to be coming from a larger perspective of care, of empathy, of affirmation of the fact that our students are in just as much of uncharted territory as we are. In this podcast, that you share as part of this collection. And in your other work, you both focus on maintaining productive relationships in the classroom community. And although this is always important, it seems really important right now. Can you talk a little bit about some of the strategies that we can use to maintain productive classroom conversations, especially dealing with difficult issues? Well, this is something I've thought a lot about. I know Kevin has too, because especially right now with all the protesting that's happening, I know that there's a lot of questions about how to address this or whether to address this in the classroom. So maybe we can get at the when you should later. But I think 
having a good connection with your students is always really key. If you're going to talk about difficult issues, that's really important. I mean, that's one of the things I've discovered in teaching this and one of the reasons why I want to write about it, because I feel like there wasn't a lot of writing about the importance of having a good, strong connection to your students. And part of that, I think, is about bringing an attitude of compassion as much as possible to your students and to the classroom, seeing them as people, developing a relationship with them, because then that's going to engender the trust that you need to have those sorts of conversations. And that's difficult to do, but it really does start on the first day with a lot of the really, I guess, sort of simple things that we think about when we think about a good classroom climate. So introducing yourself to your students, making sure that they know who you are, recognizing them as people and human beings as much as possible. There's a lot of specific techniques that we could talk about that I have in terms of like how to do it. But I guess I would just say for now, one of the main ones that I keep coming back to is the focus on structure. So having the classroom discussions as structured as possible. There's a lot of pieces to that, but that's sort of the overall thing is like having a plan for how you're going to do it, having a structure for how you're going to do it so that then that makes students comfortable to share things. You just sort of open things up to a broad, let's talk about the protests. You're not going to get a lot of participation because students are not going to know what to do. They're not going to know how to behave in that environment. And especially if you don't have an existing relationship with them where everybody feels seen and valued, then I don't think that's necessarily going to work so well. In both of your books and in our past interviews with you, you talked about setting ground rules for discussions. That's fairly easy to do and comfortable in a face-to-face environment. Will the same type of procedure work as well if people are starting classes in a remote setting? Yeah, and I think it becomes even more important in a remote setting. So the things that Cindy is talking about in terms of structure, in terms of expectations, in terms of an environment where it's a known quantity of what the discussion is about and what its purposes are and have we been transparent with it, all of that is so much harder to do in an online environment or mostly online environment, whether you're talking synchronously or asynchronously. So I think some of the things that are useful to do in an online environment The discussion forums tend to be a real staple of online teaching. Discussion boards are sometimes where discussion goes to die, certainly in the learning management system. So I think the first thing to think about is what tools are we using to engage with students? And are there ways that we can get away from just the simple discussion board? Can we do blogs? Can we do messaging apps like GroupMe or something like that? Is there a Slack channel? Are there other sorts of interfaces where this will work for students? I'm a big fan of the tool VoiceThread where students can record video and audio, but you need an institutional or a personal license for that. So that may not be an option for everybody. But I think the key to it is how are we building presence? Because in a face-to-face class, of course, there is the literal presence, the physical presence that we have with one another. In an online class, the research on it talks about they frame it as social presence is one of the key facets of creating a community of inquiry in your online class. So how are we building social presence where we are real people with one another in this course? And so even if we're discussing things asynchronously, we're still discussing with people, not screens. And I think that's a really important thing for us to be able to do. It takes a lot of effort, certainly in the first part of the course. One thing that I would certainly recommend instructors who are teaching remotely do is your first discussion with a class, you know, a lot of times it's an introductory post or something like that. Consider having a discussion about discussions. Ask your students, what's worked? What has it? We all have experience with this now from the spring. So this is a good way to kind of process some of that. What helps you learn? What helps you discuss? What gets in the way of that? What expectations do you have towards this space? How can we collaborate in setting those sorts of expectations for all of us? Those are really good ways to start in any class format, but in an online format in particular, that's a great way to start building that community and presence right away. 
I'd like to circle back to the idea of structure a little bit more, because I think that a lot of faculty think they're very structured. We all have a structure and it makes sense to us. <laughs> <laughs> In a face-to-face classroom or something that's synchronous, there's the ability to improv. And it's a performative kind of thing that happens that's not as easy to do in an asynchronous environment or it's just a different thing to do in an asynchronous environment. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by structure and the kinds of things that really need to be in place? Yeah, the examples that popped to my mind for structure, and I know there's a lot that's been written about this, particularly in inclusive pedagogy too, so there's a lot of ideas. But what I mean is that you first make sure students are looking at the content outside of the class getting familiarity with it, writing their thoughts, either in a blog post or in comments or questions. That's frequently what I do is have them write those first so that I can see them. And that way I have something to work with. I sort of know what they're doing. And then I have a structure when I come into the class of how I'm going to use that and they know how that's going to be expected. So they know I'm going to call on students based on what I've read. And even within that, you can also do, I know there's a lot of good work that's been done on something called inner teaching and also reading group roles where you give students very particular roles to play. And so in that way, you're setting up the expectations of what they'll be doing and how they can expect the class to feel every day. And so if you've done that, those are just a couple of ways you can do it. So the discussion comments ahead of time, or like I said, the very specific roles or posts that they make so that then they know it's not just going to be this open discussion, but there's going to be that piece to it. So that's one way in which I sort of think about structure. And in an online format, one of the things that might be useful to do is to think about the prompts that you use to start a discussion sort of open-ended questions like, so what do you think? You'll get a wide variety of things, but it might not be the stuff that anyone's looking for. It's also worth considering what role students might be able to play in this. So might students be taking a lead and be responsible for posting the prompt and sustaining the discussion for that particular week or that particular module? One of the things that's useful to think about in that regard is working with students explicitly on like, hey, what makes this work? What's a good question? What kind of questions do we really want to be asking here in terms of not just getting at particular content or answers, but in sustaining a conversation? And one little tweak I made, I use blogs as my principal form of discussion when I teach online, is when a student is writing their what I call the lead author post or the leader for that particular week, I encourage them to end their post with a series of questions, just like we might see at the end of a section in a textbook. So some thought questions. What do you think about these things in your assessment? What might be the most important factor, et cetera, et cetera. And so they've written a post, they've started to elicit ideas, but then they're providing that direct springboard for other students to jump into the conversation. And I found that to be a really useful way to get discussions started much more quickly in an online environment because they have that cue and that signpost, like here are the specific things that I can start responding with. And then the conversation can go from there. Yeah, just one more thing too. I was thinking like, do you do that in small groups? Because I was thinking that can be another other structure piece too, especially online. I know one of the complaints that I heard a lot in the spring was I have to read everybody's posts and they're so long and, you know, I don't know. And so it seems to me like having folks in groups, I mean, we certainly do that in the classroom face to face when we have them. So having those sort of breakout groups where they're just responding to a few people, seems like that might be a good structure piece too, to transition to online. Yeah. And coming from the small college environment, my classes are all 30 people or less. So it's a little more manageable. But you're right. In a larger group, that would be the strategy I would recommend is creating groups. And you might have those be consistent throughout the course or you might change them up. But that way, it's not an overwhelming thing. And you're not just clicking through discussion posts to respond because then you're going to get the stuff that's just sort of pro forma, almost resentful replies. So keeping that cognitive load manageable, I think, is a really important part of it. 
you mentioned VoiceThread a few minutes ago, and I use VoiceThread. I'm not using it right now, but I'm probably going to be switching over to Flipgrid. But one of the things that happened there is I had two discussions going each week. One was done in VoiceThread, one was in text. And one of the things I noticed, and students commented this at the end of the term too, is that when they were reading the text discussions in the other forum, they were hearing the voices of the people there. So it created much more of a sense of presence. You got more of a feel for the people. They were no longer just words on the screens. You already learned more about their personalities. And it made the discussions much more alive than the typical discussion board. Yeah, again, social presence, the degree to which the other people in the course are actual real human beings. And VoiceThread's a great tool for that because it adds exactly that. You hear the person, you see the person, you have that image associated in your head. We use Blackboard as our learning management system here. And the threaded discussions, instructors would come, I just can't sustain a discussion. And I couldn't, I've been teaching online for six, seven years now. And it finally dawned on me that if you look at the actual interface of those discussion boards, they don't look a thing like what our students encounter when they engage online with other people. They actually look like, I'll date myself here, but in the early 90s when I was an undergraduate, the old BBSs with the sysmod and the thread, you know, that's what a Blackboard threaded discussion looks like. That is ancient history for students in terms (laughs) of how they're engaging online. And so I moved to a WordPress blog because it looks like Yelp. It looks like social media. It looks like things that they're already used to engaging in. And so I do think one of the things we could do to create presence is add media, add video with a tool like VoiceThread. But even the interface itself, this is a place that looks like a place of engagement for our students. That's a really important consideration, I think. I use Slack for a similar reason because it allows for asynchronous conversation, but it also has the ability to be immediate in a way that threaded discussions don't feel that way. And you can at mention people and (laughs) like the things that students are used to being able to do. Yeah. I have some colleagues here who run a graduate program in athletic training that's cohort based. And each cohort Slack is the main tool they use throughout the program. And they've been super successful with it. I wanted to follow up a little bit on the difference between the spring and the fall in that in the spring, many faculty were in a face-to-face environment and they had established relationships in person with students and then moved to an online environment, which is really different than if a group needs to start online and maybe move to face to face later or maybe stay online. So can you talk a little bit about establishing that community when it might have to start remote, especially for faculty who aren't as familiar? I have less experience with that. I have not taught a ton online, but I think the social presence idea is super key. I mean, in the courses that I've taught online, I find that to be useful. So using as much short video and voice as much as possible so that they get a sense of who you are as a person and asking them to do things that are personal and low stakes in terms of like just getting to know you. I know sometimes when I've taught, like having them post pictures of their dog or cat or things like that. I have not gotten outside of the LMS as much as it sounds like, Kevin, you have, but it seems like using other tools that allow for, like you said, it to look more like what they're used to seems like it would be a useful thing. One quick thing I would add that I've been thinking about a lot is, again, I teach about pretty difficult topics often, particularly when I teach about race and racism. And so something I've been thinking about a lot is like how to create that presence when I've never taught that class online until this last March when I suddenly was. And I was grateful that I had those established relationships. And I think going forward, one thing that I've been doing the last couple of semesters, especially for my students of color, and especially I think given the environment now, I always reach out to sort of let them know that while I have a lot of expertise around racism, because I'm a white person, I don't have the same sort of 
lived experience that they have of race and racism. And I don't expect them to answer exactly, but I just sort of say, like, I want you to know that I recognize this so that you see this. And I'm thinking that that's going to be especially important teaching in this format going forward over the next year. I'm going to want to make sure that I'm definitely reaching out to students, particularly students of color, to let them know that because I know that that's an important piece of making them feel a part of the community. And I'm going to be trying to develop as many other techniques as possible because particularly in that class and in a lot of what I teach, I think it's just going to be super important to develop that sense of belonging and compassion. And it's going to be harder to do in some ways without being able to see them so often. Yeah, I would echo Cindy's emphasis on the idea of presence and ways that people can be seen for themselves, that students can be seen for themselves as opposed to just sort of avatar pictures or even generic avatar images. Sean Michael Morris has a great saying that I've seen him write a bunch in his work on online and critical digital pedagogy where he says, we need to be teaching through the screen, not to the screen. And such a simple way to put it, but I think that that's really the difference. So one practical tip on that line is video is great. Short, quick, they don't have to be super fancy produced. I record intro videos with my phone in selfie mode. And in fact, having them a little rough around the edges actually, I think, kind of helps in terms of being authentic. Someone who I think is really good at this and has a lot of good ways to get started with videos and online teaching is Mike Wesch, W-E-S-C-H. And a lot of people have heard of him. He's been doing a lot of stuff since our online pivot. But I really like his approach to the use of videos. And I really like the way that he talks about if you haven't done this sort of stuff before, how you might get started and what you might think about doing and decomplicating it for us. So a Google search will bring up his website and he's got some great resources and materials there. And then I've sent a lot of my faculty colleagues to look in there who have had questions about effective use of videos. But again, to what degree are we real people in an online learning space? Anything that we can do to raise that. And regular communication is so important to us. And he talks about whether it's with individual students, the whole class, you know, check in emails. It requires a lot more monitoring maybe in terms of are people in the space and not. You don't want to turn into like a surveillance or anything like that. But by the same token, it's very easy for students to drift away in a class that's mostly online, and we need to be really cognizant of that. One of the factors there that makes a difference is economic inequalities, where students in low-income households may not have the same access to high-speed Wi-Fi, to computers, and other tools. What can we do to try to maintain an equitable and inclusive environment when students have very different resources for connecting to classes? Yeah, this is so challenging. I think one thing is just to know for sure that that is a problem. And so I know a lot of us in March did little surveys to find out where the students at, what sort of access do they have? Are there any issues that we need to be aware of? I know on our campus, there was so much concern that students not having access wouldn't even know because they wouldn't be getting the email that we sent out postcards to every student just in case to try to make sure that we caught all of them. So those are some things. I think also really pushing your institution as much as possible to provide resources because a lot of this, it's so upsetting because it's so disempowering, or at least that's how I've experienced it because I know that there are students who have very simple needs. I was talking to one student on the phone, one of my advisees, I was doing advising over the phone in March or April, and 
we have a fair number of rural students from Western Wisconsin, and she was talking about living in a house where there were mice that would chew through the cords so that then their Wi-Fi, you know, they would lose it. And it's just like, oh, that's such a terrible problem that I don't know how to fix. <laughs> like, I don't know how to fix that. And so like really pushing our institutions to provide as much as possible to those students to find out who they are, to make sure that we're providing them with a laptop, at least something loner, some sort of hotspot maybe that they can use for Wi-Fi. I know lots of campuses did that. We tried to do that. But really pushing administration and our campuses to remember those students and to help them because at the faculty level, it can be really difficult to solve some of those problems. I mean, sometimes you can, but it can be difficult if they're those sort of material problems. Yeah, at a small school like mine, it's easier to do those sorts of things because most of us know the students well and it's easier to communicate and, you know, touch base with one another. But at larger institutions, this is imperative, right? Because oftentimes it's going to be the faculty member who's probably most aware of where the lack of access or spots are in our own particular course. So what's the communication channel to try to get those things resolved? So every institution, their faculty need to know, who do I approach to help problem solve this? What's the protocol? How are we going to figure this out? So many institutions got access to CARES Act money, for example, so emergency grants to students, little Chromebooks and things like that. But we can't guide those resources efficiently if we don't know where they need to go. So what's the communication plan is the biggest one. And then as Cindy points out, how are we finding this from our students? So a quick survey about not just access, but availability. Like there's a difference between access to Wi-Fi and ready availability of Wi-Fi. If the public library is still closed, does this person still have access, right? <laughs> or is it still available? So details we can get in terms of where you're at right now, do you have steady access to internet? What's the connection like? Rate it from zero to 10, with zero being the mice have chewed through the cords and 10 being I can stream three things at once, right? And trying to get as much of a sense as we can, because then that informs the choices that we make. There's a lot of online practitioners right now who are saying that the stuff we're designing online, make it so students can do it on a phone. And I'm a big proponent of that. If we're going to be moving into remote instruction, this is not what most students signed up for. And so we need to make sure that they can still access. So don't have students uploading and downloading large video files, for example. Be conscious of how we might be forcing students to use parts of their data plan. So streaming things might work, but what platform are they streaming it through? Was it something that has a good mobile app, for example? If you're using Zoom, is that a good mobile app as opposed to Skype? And then reach out to your colleagues if you're not quite sure what the answers to those things are, because those are important considerations in those sort of routine choices we make in creating learning spaces, especially if we're in for a remote fall. I think along those same lines and those same surveys, asking about that availability in terms of caretaking jobs, like actual time, because they might have signed up for a class at a specific time, but that might not actually be their availability. <laughs> There's, I think, a lot of assumptions that faculty might make that we shouldn't be making. Right. I think one of the things that folks really struggled with this spring was the expectation that we could just continue classes synchronously as normal. And I think very quickly, a lot of folks learned that that is not the case. And if we end up this fall with maybe some in person, but some online, and I think that's the best case scenario for the students who are online, we can't expect synchronous. We just can't just if they're not on campus. So we need to be thinking really hard about what the pathways to learning are and are those equitable, are those inclusive, the equivalency of an in-person versus online synchronous versus asynchronous. Those are some really important decisions that need to be made. And they need to be made from, uh, I think, planning for the worst as opposed to the sort of magical thinking that everything will go away and will be normal in August, because I don't think it's responsible for us to approach our planning that way. He said pessimistically. <laughs> realistically. Yeah, realistically. 
Yeah, I feel like that synchronous asynchronous is such a challenge to in terms of thinking about our own classes. I mean, it seems like, yeah, that is difficult, I think, sometimes to get folks to understand from an equity perspective that really, if you are online, even if you have to suddenly pivot to it or you'd plan for this, but then it's going to be mostly online, which is like Kevin said, I think probably most likely just really understanding and helping your colleagues to understand that that really does need to be asynchronous. And I know that's really hard for people. I think there's a lot of maybe grief is the right word around sort of like having to give that up. And there's also a lot of focus on, well, if we just get the right cameras and if we get the right kind of technology, then somehow we can still do it synchronously. But all of that assumes, first of all, that the students can like download or have all the bandwidth for that to be able to like live stream that or whatever. But it also assumes that they can be available during those times. And I have a lot of fear because just because it's on the schedule, let's say right now, like we're registering new students right now. I'm doing that all day tomorrow. So there's this expectation that somehow they should be able to do that without really thinking through what it's like for those students. So I feel like that synchronous asynchronous is a real thing that a lot of us need to focus on and help other people understand better. And even with the synchronous piece too, not to say we can never do synchronous stuff, but I think when we're requiring students, if you're gaining participation, you might want to rethink that as a strategy. And then what kind of opportunities might be available for students? Are there different windows of time where they could drop in as opposed to only at Monday from 1 to 1.50? And that's more work on the faculty side, plain and simple. But if you want to preserve that part of a course, you have to put in the extra work to make sure that it's accessible for all your students. And I think in some cases, that's a perfectly appropriate strategy. And for schools like mine that are doing the high flex model of preparation, there is a synchronous element to it, but it's heavily modified from what our usual expectations are. So I think we need to really think through that clearly before we start making design choices. So the high flex model can be pretty challenging for faculty because basically you're developing the equivalent of two courses where you're developing some activities that are synchronous and then equivalent activities that are asynchronous. How are faculty reacting to that? I know we've done a series of workshops here and that was not a concept that appealed to all faculty at this point, having come right off of the spring semester. And that's the thing. There is that sort of sticker shock to it where you look at it and you say, oh, this is a lot. And it is. And so what I think administration needs to do is to acknowledge and affirm that effort. Are there ways that you can support that faculty work, even if you can't be handing out money left and right? Are there ways that small stipends can be given? What kind of faculty development support are you giving faculty? How are you going to help guide and enter them through that? I think one of the things about the high flex model that is appealing is one of its core principles is the idea of reusability, that there are learning activities and artifacts that could be used across these different modes. And I think that's something that we can really take advantage of. One of the things that I think could work really well is that the students who are are attending asynchronously online doing equivalent learning activities, might those activities be leading a discussion online that involves the whole class? So the whole class is still participating, but there's a little bit of a level up in terms of the effort and the direction that's coming from students on the asynchronous side. So that you're doing equivalencies, you're still building community. You don't have students who are in separate tracks and never meeting. The high flex model to me seems to be most effective when we're able to braid these things together as much as we can. But you're right. It's not like you're designing three separate courses, but it's certainly more than designing one course. It's somewhere in between there. And what that means is work plain and simple. And I think administration, the people who are cutting the checks need to realize the scope of effort that goes into that, in particular with what we're asking our part-time colleagues to do in terms of preparing for the fall. Because I think it's a perfectly reasonable response for an adjunct faculty member to say, at the same rate of pay as a normal semester course, that I can't do that for this. And 
So what are we going to have in place? Because a lot of times in institutions, it is our adjunct colleagues who are teaching our 100-level courses or courses that really intersect with a large number of students. And if you're not supporting adjunct faculty anyway, you're doing it wrong. But certainly in this process of high flights, we really need to be paying attention and directing resources to that group in particular. One of the things you mentioned is an argument I've tried to make to faculty here, which is to focus your time on activities that can work in any modality and have most of the graded work done asynchronously. So you don't have to spend as much time creating completely separate assignments and then create things that support instruction in any way. And then you'll have them if things get back to normal in a semester or two or three or four. And that seemed to help a little bit, but people were still not entirely convinced. The one thing about the high flex model, too, is if we do have to go fully remote in October or whatnot, if you've already created that pathway, that's going to be a lot easier to do than it was in the spring. And I think one of the things that I really saw in the spring that kind of gladdened me was there was a lot of extending of compassion and grace to faculty and to students that we're all figuring this out together. I don't think that's going to be the same case for the fall. There is going to be this like, okay, y'all had some time to think about this. If there is this sort of pivot that has to happen, hopefully we're a little bit better prepared. And so, John, I think your idea is about the way to structure those assignments and to have them asynchronously and have those things that work across modalities. Those are some of the key strategies to that kind of preparation. I think we talked a little bit earlier about the ongoing protests related to George Floyd's death and the unrest related to that in addition to COVID-19. And so faculty are feeling concern about that and wanting to make sure that they're addressing all kinds of inequities, not just the ones that bubbled up from COVID-19, despite the fact that those are the same inequities that existed before COVID-19. They just became more visible. Can you talk a little bit about ways that faculty might better prepare themselves for dealing with these kinds of issues and these kinds of conversations in the fall? We're getting a lot of questions, especially from white faculty, about not feeling prepared to address issues of racism, for example. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of like a lot of people are putting out statements, for example. So institutions are putting out statements, often coming from chancellors and presidents. And I've been thinking more about rather than doing things like that, actually doing the work of trying to make your classes as inclusive as possible. I think sort of a cliched way to put it, but what matters is what you do, not really what you say. So I keep thinking about a couple things. There's like two pieces to this in my mind. There's like the inclusive pedagogy piece of it, which is the work that may not be the talking about difficult ideas, but you're addressing the actual inequity, right? And so really thinking about, and there's a lot of good guides on inclusive pedagogy. I know Kevin's written about this. Vigi Sathy and Kelly Hogan had a great advice guide in the Chronicle and their book will be coming out soon-ish, I think. Not sure exactly when, but they have a lot of good ideas and have written a lot about it. But actually doing that work and really thinking about your class in terms of being as inclusive as possible, because when you're doing that, then you are doing that equity work, whether or not you're making a statement about it. So that's one thing. I think the other thing, too, is that if you do want to talk about it, sort of being as prepared as possible, and this gets back to this idea of structure, but it really doesn't go well if you don't know a lot about these issues from your discipline's perspective. I think it's a good idea to find out. So let's say you teach a course where traditionally you don't think these issues would come up. I have a good friend who works here who's a mathematician who talks a lot about the idea of math and white privilege, which is really a foreign concept to a lot of folks. But like he's done the work to understand that, even though it's not his specialty area. And he talks about it in class. And it's usually helpful for those students. In addition, you could also just look at your field overall in terms of 
I know, Kevin, I've heard you talk about this, like looking at who are your textbook authors and then just making that visible to your students. Like, here's who these authors are. Here's how this field has been inequitable. Here are some ways to think about this field overall and look at the resources I'm sharing with you where I'm trying intentionally to be equitable. So really just doing the work less about statements and more about actually doing that work of trying to find ways to bring it in that are relevant and understanding it really well before you try to talk about it. Because when you know it and you have a plan for how you're going to talk about it and a plan for helping students make sense of it, like this is why I'm talking about this, this is why this matters in this particular field, you're going to be a lot better off than if, say, you just sort of wanted to open it up and ask people to talk about their feelings about it. You could do that, but I think you have to do that in a context where you've already done a lot of work to prepare them for that. So I think it takes some effort to get ready for that, but it's certainly doable and definitely worth it because it helps those students to feel seen and to feel a part of the class in ways that they probably usually don't. And in terms of the work that we need to do as faculty members as well, now is not the time, for example, to email one of your Black colleagues colleagues and say, help me learn about anti-racist work. No, no, no. You know, that's sort of, let's put that out there. I'm a white man. For those of us who identify as white, there is an onus on us to do the sort of work to interrogate not just inequities, but whiteness and how whiteness works at the university. And so the questions we need to be thinking about already, but are certainly heightened now, does our faculty and staff at our institution, does it look like our student body? The answer to that is probably no. So what's being done about that? How are we addressing that as an institution? What am I doing in the classroom to promote a sense of belonging for all of my students? Belonging is key. And again, in an online or mostly online environment, it becomes even more important. How do I belong in this class as a learner? Am I seeing ways that I can personally connect with the course material, the instructor, my peers in the classroom? So how do we foster that sense of genuine belonging and welcome? That doesn't mean that you do the equivalent of sit in a circle and sing Kumbaya for the first class, but it does mean students are not just brains on sticks and <laughs> students are coming to us just like as we're coming into this work. It's been a hell of a few years. Our bandwidth is weird. Our attention spans are weird. There's anxiety. There's ambient stress. So let's recognize that and acknowledge that for our students when we think about the choices that we make and we're designing our learning spaces. Even if we may not think our material is political or has to do with race, the lives that our students are living are political and have to do with race, for example, and they are not coming to us from a vacuum. And I swear we didn't pre-plan this, but I will promote Cindy's book in this regard. It's been super useful. And again, for those of us who are white, I have found it really helpful in thinking about the ways as a historian that I'm approaching this subject with my students, but also as a faculty developer and working with colleagues too. It's a great book full of concrete suggestions about how to do this kind of work, especially if it's not the type of work that you've been doing or felt like you've been asked to do before. So that's one good starting point. Thanks. <laughs> and I'd like to throw in that we regularly promote both of your books with our faculty because they do a really <laughs> nice job talking about creating an inclusive environment in classes, which is something we all have to worry about. Yeah, it's a teaching and learning conversation. Do all our students have the equitable opportunities to accomplish the goals for the course? If I create course goals, these course outcomes, DFINC calls them the significant learning experience. If not all of my students have the opportunity to get the same significant in the learning experience, 
then that's a problem. We are breaking promises that we made to students when we admitted them to our institution. So yeah, it's all of our work to do. To follow up on something that Kevin said about this isn't the time to reach out to our faculty of color for advice. Instead, I'd like to recommend if it's a topic that you don't have a lot of practice talking about is to work with a few colleagues who also need to practice and practice with each other. (laughs) Open up the conversation and give yourself the opportunity to practice before you're practicing in front of all your students. And there's so many resources. Like that's one of the things in this moment, like there's tons of lists of books going around, right? And really good podcasts. I mean, I certainly have no shortage of recommendations. I'm sure Kevin does too. There's lots of stuff out there where you don't need to ask people individually. You can read about people's lives. You can read about their experiences and take them seriously. And the more you do that and the more you listen in that way, the more prepared you're going to be. But I love the idea of practicing too. Let's practice talking about these awkward topics. It's an excellent suggestion. We want our students to practice, right? So we might as well practice too. (laughs) (laughs) One topic that came up in our earlier podcast with Kevin was the notion of decolonizing your syllabus. And one of the issues when we address that idea with many faculty is that there may not be many voices from other groups. One of the questions that comes up often is, might it be effective just to address the systematic exclusion of those other voices in the classroom to at least address the issue and recognize that it's a problem? Yeah, absolutely. Getting students to critically interrogate the silences in our disciplines and our fields, I think, is really important decolonization work. And it's an easier thing to do in a discipline like history where you can sort of trace who got to write the history when. But I think it gives us a chance to talk about what are ways of knowing what type of knowledge claims are valued. The Western emphasis on so-called rational objectivity. That's a very culturally specific product. And so if that's the dominant paradigm in, let's say, a math course, then what does that mean? Is that the only path? And when we think that we're learning something that's true with a capital T, objective with a capital O, chances are it isn't. And if there aren't other perspectives, then yes, absolutely. Let's have those conversations about why that's the case. I think sometimes the silences are more powerful of a learning tool than anything else. And getting students to look for those silences, to look for those spaces and understand that they're there that by their absence is a really effective way to get at some of this larger work. Yeah, that's part of what I meant about bringing it into classes where you might not think it fits or whatever, because you don't normally talk about it. But you can look at the field in a meta way and say, like, who's in this field and who's not? who's being published and who's not. I know over the weekend, there was a great series of tweets. I forget the hashtag on it, but it was like, people were comparing their book advances. You guys might have seen this. And so it was like this comparison of white authors and black authors. And, you know, the discrepancies were very large. And usually people don't talk about what their book advances are. And so this might be a way, let's say, if you're teaching literature where you could show like, here, look at this field, look at whose voices are being heard, who's being published in a meta way. And again, what that does, and the research is pretty clear on this, is by pointing out those discrepancies, you're often validating the students of color in your class who know that there's this discrimination there, but they maybe don't have the data or the information. And then by providing it, you're validating that experience for them and helping them to feel seen and belong in the class. So yeah, that can be super useful. I think it's also sometimes faculty don't know how to find out about other scholars in their field. And I think that at one point I felt that way too. I didn't know who they were. They weren't in my community because I wasn't including them in my community. (laughs) And my community wasn't including. But finding a couple of voices, you only need a couple, follow them on social media, and then follow the people who respond. All of a sudden, your social network and the people that you follow and the voices that you hear expand greatly. And it can really help in terms of just knowing what's going on in a bigger picture. Something as simple as that can actually expand your knowledge really quickly. 
yeah, what are you consuming in terms of your intellectual work? And asking yourself that question, and then what am I consuming and where am I getting it from? And what does the production of that intellectual work look like? Then making changes accordingly. As white scholars, it's very easy for us. In fact, almost always we default into communities of white scholars, given the structures of inequity that are in place. This isn't something that will happen by accident. It's the diversification of our intellectual work and our intellectual world, the consumption of knowledge, the production of knowledge. We have to make the mindful effort to do that. It's not something that's just going to happen because social media is a thing. It's how we're using these platforms and tools that's so important. One of the things you emphasize in your Pedagogies of Care project is that it's more important to focus on learners rather than content. Could you talk a little bit about that? The mantra that I always use is covering content is what instructors do, not what students do. So if your strategy is revolving around, I'm going to cover X, okay, great. I know what you're going to do in this course, but what are your students going to do? And when we think about it that way, then we start asking some of the questions that will lead us to, I think, more effective choices. Yeah, that's what I loved so much about your book, Kevin. What was so great about it was like, I already felt like I was focused a lot on the relationship because I don't think a lot of learning can happen without the relationships. But your book really helps to like flip that lens to think about that piece of it. Like, what are the students doing? Because if it's just about content, it gets into that classrooms of death concept that you talk about really nicely in the first chapter. Because, yeah, it's not there. Yeah, and it's not to say that content isn't important that we should just get rid of, but everything in a balance. And right now, a lot of the classes that we teach don't have that balance. And it comes down to what do we want our students to be able to get out of these courses? They're not going to remember all the content within a year. So that seems like an enormous waste of time if that's our exclusive focus. I think one lesson that I've noticed faculty have taken away from this spring, and of course, I've been mostly an innocent bystander because I was on sabbatical is that faculty were slashing content as a way to pivot and recognizing that maybe all this isn't necessary so that you could focus on some of these bigger ideas, like the way that a discipline works or ways that we connect or work together as scholars in a particular field. Yeah, and nothing exploded. Right. You know, the world didn't end, <laughs> although it does seem like it, it, it is on some days. But, <laughs> but all of a sudden, we realize what's been possible that we had thought wasn't the case. And I think those are really important lessons for us to take from this spring going forward. I think the language that you use in your book, Kevin, is about being an ally for our students. Can you talk a little bit more about ways that we can be better allies and what we shouldn't be doing? So I'll use an example, actually, from a conversation that probably happened in a lot of places this past spring with our online pivot. And it certainly happened at my institution. And that comes with online proctoring for exams. All of a sudden, if students are taking tests online, we need to proctor them. And if you look at the way that these proctoring services work, Shea Swagger wrote a really good critique of that in hybrid pedagogy several weeks ago. But this is surveillance tech. This is really kind of creepy stuff, just objectively speaking. And it costs a lot of money. For resource-poor institutions like mine, this is a significant investment if we're going to do these things. And I think what happens is we immediately went into this place where we assumed that given any opportunity to game the system, that that's exactly what students would do, that that would be their default reaction. And I think if you look a lot of the rhetoric about, well, how do we make sure they're not cheating? And how do we make sure that we're fair to everybody? And how do we prevent this? And how do we prevent that? That's an adversarial position. We're assuming that our students are adversaries by default. And they know that. They hear us when we treat them like that. And students want the same things that we want out of our courses. They want meaningful learning. They want the course to be a good experience. They want to get something out of it, even if it's a course they're taking to check a box as they see it. 
students want their courses to not suck as opposed to suck. And I want my courses to not suck as opposed to suck. So we have a confluence of goals. So I think we need to be really careful about the narrative that we construct of students because it is very easy to default into this adversarial outlook. And as we're really grappling with all sorts of sort of new questions and materials and tools in online teaching and learning, this is a real problem. So we need to really think about the choices that we're making institutionally as well as in our own class and what those choices are saying either implicitly or explicitly to our students. The first prompt of the semester, how do we all make this not suck? Yeah, we should have said that explicitly in that workshop we gave to faculty for the last couple of weeks. Really good advice. I, mean, I hate to use all sorts of technical language there, but you know, sometimes you got to dive in. We always end with a question, what's next? Which is something we're all thinking about these days. I think two things for me. One is, like I said, I really want to make sure that I'm teaching about racism and prejudice online as strongly as possible because that is new and I'm going to be doing that again. So that I think is going to be one focus. The other focus is going to be the brand new Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning that we have at River Falls, which I'm very excited about. But boy, the timing is strange. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's amazing. So I accepted that position like at the very end of February, beginning of March. And then of course, the world sort of changed and upended and ended. And so figuring out how to help my campus instructors as much as possible. So that's going to keep me busy. Yeah, about the same for me. We're working a lot of intensive training this summer, in particular with high flex course design and teaching, as well as everything for the nuts and bolts. Here's how to use this particular tool to the larger kind of bigger sessions on things like course design and integrated course design and things like that. So I'm getting good at a lot of tools that I had sort of known about but hadn't used before because I'm field testing a lot of things for faculty and making tutorial videos. So that's what's next is the next module in this training I'm building. But also, I'm currently teaching a course. I'm teaching African-American history online. And so that course is in a much different place now than it was even when it started earlier in the summer. It is the first time my institution has offered a course in African-American history. Our curriculum needs to be decolonized in many ways. And so what's next for me is building on what so far has been a really, I think, kind of powerful set of experiences with the students who are enrolled in this class and thinking about how we take that work and sustain it as opposed to have it just be a summer course that goes away. No shortage of big, tall demands. (laughs) None whatsoever. (laughs) Definitely keep me off the streets and out of trouble. Well, thank you both. The last time we talked to each of you, things were a little more calm. I think Kevin was the last podcast we had when this was just getting underway and before most campuses closed. And it's nice to follow you and to see how things are going and all the great things that you're doing. And thank you for your wonderful work. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. <laughs>